1: you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andtherideris.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's multi-Grammy-winning iconic producer is one of the most notable entrepreneurs and executives in the game. Baby, 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 oh, this guy has penned quintessential evergreens for some of the most legendary artists across all genres of all time. He's written the kind of hits that you can't imagine didn't always exist. All the single ladies and the rest of us have been under his umbrella for 30 years of his musical genius. And in addition to crafting records for generational talents like Mary J. Blige, Mariah Carey and Celine Dion. He is the founder and creator of Red Zone Entertainment. From Atlanta, this man has quite literally changed the music industry from successfully navigating both sides of it whilst still being a family man. And the writer is Tricky
0: Stewart. Hey, thank you man. That was a that was a, a great introduction. So, uh full disclosure,
1: about 10 years ago, there was some artist and I can't remember the name of who they were that was at Epic. And I had a song that I wrote with a producer named D Mile, who's great. And, uh, and you were A and Ring it. And I was doing everything I could at that point to get into the songwriting game. And you liked this one song and you called my phone and I was in Mexico and my mom and my dad answered my phone. Which, oh wow <laughs> wow and, and i called i i came back and they were like uh um tricky stewart called you and i was like what i I gotta find which song it was i just all i i don't think it it ended up coming out i just remember I, we were working on some lyric notes and whatever i called you back and we whatever we talked for a minute then, and. Um, but at, at that time in my career, it was like to have, you know, to have you call me on my phone was like a, a solid landmark because I was just, you know, at that point, I'd been studying your songs for a long time. So, uh, pretty cool that, you know, that was a, a random first meeting with my mom and my dad telling me that you had, uh, you had called earlier in the day. No, <laughs>
0: like, that's, that's a cool story. <laughs> You, um, you know i was trying to get you on man i was trying to get you on
1: i appreciate that okay so let's start from the beginning both of us are are uh, chicago suburban of sorts you're uh
0: you grew
1: you were born in
0: in illinois um, yeah and uh, i was born in markham illinois grew up in the calumet city dalton uh area which is uh, a south suburb it's about 35 minute drive to downtown chicago so grew up there went to thornwood high school um dropped out of thornwood high school moved to la chasing my dreams and um we're still out here i i I guess you could say the rest is history but we're still trying to make it so i don't want it to be history just yet i just wanted to be part of the story i love that
1: were your parents musicians obviously your brother is a prominent musician but were your parents musicians um,
0: everyone in my family is a musician of some sort. So from the standpoint of I grew up uh, as a church musician and, and playing and wanting to play in my mother's choir, who um, it was kind of like the thing that the family did. It was like whether it's my cousin, Ku Corral, my brother, Laney, my cousin, Sean Sepp Hall, Jason Weaver, like the big thing was like getting involved into that choir so with the whole big quest as a kid was being good enough to become the drummer of that choir and while on the side at trinity united church of christ down on 95th street actually being the drummer for um for their choir on the side but at the same time my uncle butch stewart rest in peace uh was a really big jingle producer in Chicago, uh, owned a company by the name of Joy Art. And, you know, I grew up doing the commercials with all my cousins, like, Big Mac Filet, Fish Quarter Pound of French Fries, Icy Coke, Thick Shakes. So it was all that kind of stuff. And we did all that stuff. Like, that was kind of the vibes of what we did on the weekends. It was like, you know, go do commercials for our Uncle Butch and play in the choir. So... You know, the whole family does music. My dad, who I wouldn't... I personally didn't... I mean, maybe, I, maybe I'm being disrespectful, but um, I didn't really view him as a musician much, um, although he directed choirs and things when him and my mother met, but he had gone more into uh, radio and became a program director. And my mom, who also, you know, sang for uh, Aretha Franklin... Uh, giving him something he could feel and all that. She became a program director after that. So, but my dad ended up at the end, uh, like I guess kind of after he like chilled a little bit uh, after that part of music ended up going back to school and become a classical pianist, which I was like, yeah, whatever. Like anybody could read music. That's not a big deal. But I guess overall, yes, I come from a musical family. And uh that's kind of what it was like growing up in Illinois for me and there's just cousins upon punk cousins upon punk cousins that do really significant things in music on different levels
1: growing up in a family that understands radio programming or being program directors, I imagine that that you you have a certain level between that and competing to be in your mom's choir. You know, to play for that, that, I imagine that the level of excellence
0: is is constant in your household. Well, you know, it's interesting because although my mom was, because she was also a radio personality, and then became a program director, it was also I never really put it together like that. You know, it wasn't. I didn't really think about it like that because one was like church and just like the the love of the game kind of like playing. And then the other was her playing records and, and meeting, meeting stars and doing all that kind of stuff. But I never really, I never really gravitated towards the radio side of it, other than just hearing my mom on the radio and, and honestly just monitoring when she was coming home, because I knew that we knew that the parties had to stop because we would be throwing some fucking, cool ass parties and stuff when my brothers were in high school and I was in like seventh grade and she was on overnight. So it was like, that was, that was what radio meant to us, you know?
1: Were, were you in recording, recording studios at that time? I mean, obviously again, everybody making music, you know, and especially in Chicago, were you just constantly raised in a studio as well? And was it secular music where did your, parents play because of the church were they playing mostly secular or mostly christian music or were they playing uh no, were they playing- we, um,
0: we grew up in a very um mixed uncensored household because we loved earth went in fire and we loved bootsy collins and we loved uh kiss and we loved uh the barge and rick james and just a lot of stuff that was happening so we loved that as much as we loved james cleveland and richard smallwood and it was just it was really just talent based i think in my household and um you know and so it wasn't any sort of there was never any conversation of secular versus gospel it was just um it was just what was really really great music
1: what brought you into, you know, obviously leaving high school and then coming to LA to work on music. Before you do that, you have to know that you want to work on music. When do you actually start creating
0: music? Well, it was it was a little bit different. You know, I I would think most people that would know me from Chicago would know me as an athlete first. So when what sport? um football, basketball, and baseball, actually. So um, the thing was, music was the fallback plan. You know how people say, oh, have something to fall back on. I was like, oh, man, I'm not going to be a professional athlete because once I started getting recruited and they were telling me that I was too short and that ultimately they were going to have to change my position and this and that, I was like, oh, yeah, I need something to fall back on. So that fall back on was music because I knew, I like, in my environment, that's what you do. That's like, That's like having uh an ice cream shop up the street and you would go it was just like i'm gonna go work in dad's ice cream shop it wasn't it wasn't like a dream it was like all right well i gotta get to la because i gotta make some music it was more like that
1: that's crazy what what were your positions in what
0: sports like in in football what did you play i played quarterback in football i played pitcher and shortstop in baseball And I played point guard as football, I mean, in in basketball. So from the standpoint of what I think it takes to be a good producer, it was a lateral move for me into a different thing about, you know, what the responsibility of a music producer was, is to be in control, call the right plays, put the right combinations of things together, see the field a certain way, and then execute. So that's where, like, even with the red zone, that's where that all comes from. It's like, yes, we're playing basketball. Yes, we are playing music, but we play it from a football perspective. And the whole idea is to be in the red zone so that you have an opportunity to score. So philosophically, uh, being in the in the red zone and staying in the red zone is just kind of giving yourself in this business that is really, really hard to stay in. The longevity part really has to do with staying in the red zone and, and a lot of that has to do with just decision making, um, staying focused on the right thing, making sure that you're um, spending time making music and, and ultimately making sure that you're spending time selling music. There's a lot of people in our business that just like to make it, but you have to sell it too because that's the, that's the second part of, of creation is, is um, getting it to the right artist and getting it to the right vehicle because you can easily write a hit song that if it doesn't get heard or to the right person to get access, it could just be a great song that no one knows. Yeah, it sits on your iTunes.
1: (laughs) I mean, even just the work ethic that you get from being a professional athlete, you, you know, you would never, you know, you don't show up to games, you know, you don't necessarily show up to the games fucked up you might actually stretch before you play a game like you might actually want to do a little research or like treat it like it's a you know you go to the gym and you work out when you're a professional athlete there's you you can do that as a musician too and actually put in time to be a better musician absolutely I I, i like a lot of the publishing companies that treat treat you know sessions like it's a like it's a game and not sessions like it's a practice I think a lot of songwriters think of, oh, well, let's just go and do another session. It's like, well, you know, the made the song might just show up and sound a little bit like that too.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. It's all it's all in the approach and from my standpoint, I've been able to bring that that intensity level I think to to music. Now, when you move
1: to oh. LA, you your first cuts are, are a lot of them are, you know, doing remixes and stuff. And remixes, I feel like have taken on different, you know, different meanings as time's gone on. But why, like when you first got to LA, how long was it from when you got off the plane or out of a car or however you got to LA, how long did it take get from, from the car to, you know, getting into a recording studio?
0: Um, so gosh, my memory's so bad at some of these things, so I might mess up this story just a little bit. But um, what ended up happening is we got to Los Angeles, um, we had a relationship with a gentleman by the name of Lou Silence Jr., the late great AR um for MCA Records who kind of was the brains behind um New additions, uh, any heartbreak, BBD, uh, poison album, uh, mm. a lot of Pebbles, LA and Babyface, a lot of their early big hit songs, Bobby Brown's, like that era of music. And I was really, really attracted to that era of music. So we made it our business to build a relationship with Lil Silas. And when I say we, I mean my brothers and I, and Laney and Mark. And Laney had a pre existing relationship with him to the point that when we were in Chicago, uh, Lul used to fly to LA to work with, uh, with Laney when I was underneath Laney as a producer. So um, we had some inroads there. Uh, and then we had inroads with a few other A&R people. So with that being said, when we got to LA, we weren't like coming from nowhere. Right. So, it was really just a matter of me creating an access point or an access line to Lul Silas Jr. as far as I was concerned and the artists that have really, um, you know, really just kind of set my soul on fire musically. So if you can imagine like, you know, if right now we have in Atlanta here, we have an, uh, a creative team and a label going crazy with uh, QC with P and coach. So, you know, if you're a rapper right now and you like Little Baby and you like the City Girls and you like Lil Yachty and the things that they have going on, this is a calling card for you to want to be part of that culture. And it becomes your job at that point to get to that label. And that's what that kind of represented at that point. It was, it didn't seem that hard because the, the address you knew where the people were, it was on the back of every album. So it was just a matter of like, whether it was being by his car Knew him where he ate, <laughs> knew him like it's a little bit stalkerish, but you kind of just get in a position to be discovered and to have a conversation to remind someone that they know you and that you've met them or whatever the situation is. And those remix opportunities came by the way of him just saying, uh, kind of, get out of my face, kid. You know, like I know you're talented. I heard some of your shit back when I was in Chicago, but you know, really. You know, my shit didn't sound nothing like, you know, what was going on at the time, which was LA and Babyface were making Don't Be Cruel and Teddy Riley was doing Guy and Jamin Lewis were doing um, you know, um Any Heartbreak and, and can and and Janet Jackson. So my music clearly wasn't on that level, but um it was it was a matter of just getting there to try to be part and um, I believe he threw us a couple of remix opportunities. Let us work with some of the the other artists um, that were on the label, uh, which were like Aaron Hall because he had just started his own label. So you had Aaron Hall, Shante Moore, a um, few other things, but and and Damian Hall. So uh, we had my brother Lainey had been doing Aaron Hall's album. We had gotten like a little uh, some ideas on there that that he grew up for us turned them into records and ended up with two records on there. Um, And then from there, that relationship just turned into us getting on that Bobby Brown "If It Ain't Good Enough" remix of the Ellie and Babyface record, right? And that was a big record at the time. And to have that opportunity was just like did immense things for our confidence, which led us to getting our first placement as producers with our name as the, you know, as the main thing on Shantae Moore's uh, album, one of her early albums, I can't, uh, Love Supreme, I think it was called. Um, I think it was called Love Supreme. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, so just trying to uh, build that relationship. We would just take any opportunity. And a lot of times those opportunities came in the form of remixes. How was your relationship with your
1: brother? I mean, I imagine you were a younger brother. Yeah, you know, um, going and working with your—I I don't have a brother; I have a sister. But if we were together, I'd kill her.
0: You know, it's like
1: I don't know. So there's how, two.
0: There's you know? two. There's three of us all together. But one does business. One is the manager, and then there's the two brothers that produce.
1: I see. How How are you guys in a? You know, with it are you guys equal when you're in a studio together or was it like, no, you're my little brother were you um, guys, or was it always like, no, nah, we're
0: brothers. It doesn't really matter who's older or younger. No, I mean, like, I think, how do I explain it? I think from the standpoint of, I think we know who does, who does what best. And at the, early on in my career, like he did everything better. So there was never a question of like, who does what best? But I think overall we have the we have a very similar skill set. So you know, a lot of times we spend time working with other people doing the same thing with other groups of people. So it's not uh, we've never had an occasion to bang uh, to bang heads like creatively yeah. because we always were we were always the engine of whatever room we were in, you know, we were the driving force of the room that we were in. So there hasn't been a whole bunch of like, let's get in the studio and collaborate. You know what I mean? When did you know you could,
1: you know, create music without your, you know, without your brothers in the room? Or is it pretty close? Were you at that point already doing, you know, you guys are in separate rooms sometimes? Or, you know, when you said your brother was just better than everything, than you well, were, you the-
0: know, it, it's different. You know, like, you got to understand this is a time where technology is not the same. There's no shortcuts. So a really good producer sounded completely different than you sound. So it's not like everybody had the same plugins or everybody had the same advantages. It's just like, a really good producer sounded like he was had a completely different job than you did. Right. And that's what, so there was no, there was no, um, there was no confusion about who that person was in the studio, uh, uh the studio life of yesteryear. Right. And, and I, I think that went in every situation. So um, it just wasn't a lot of, like, I knew I could produce, when my shit sounded like everybody else's and when it sounded as good. And I was literally deep into my career before it was time for me to actually start producing. Like I was, I was part of teams. I could add pieces and it might've been my record and it might've been my idea, but being responsible for what the final product sounded like, I was, it wasn't probably until,
1: I mean, it was another 12 years after those songs. Like when, when you get like the, not, I mean, you've had before that, but like once, you know, what I was going to say is that even after you, you start getting those, that confidence, you're starting to get cuts and you start getting some big names on your discography, the Color Me Bads and the Braxtons and 98 Degrees and all the things, Tony, Tony, Tony. I mean, come on. Like just legends. Yeah. And, you know, you, you're working on all kinds of like amazing records. Um but the kind of success but, you have later is so so different. Because I think
0: I think the big thing is, right, is then those those records and yes, you're making money and you're you are the thing. You you're part of the thing. But until you start driving the albums until your record is the record, you're not producing. Like in my opinion, like you're just making music and a lot of people can make music, but when you become a hit maker, then you become responsible for how the ecosystem is built. And that's a completely different feeling in music. And there's a lot of people who get addicted to going to the studio, making music, having a bounce and thinking, no, you're not like that person. You're not, you're not like that person. What they're doing is changing the way that the game sounds and in, in, in the era that you're alluding to is when I found the dream and we started writing the umbrellas and the falsettos and the you know the babies and all those different things and there was nobody on the planet that had a record that sounded like the records that we were making and the concepts were better the, the everything the sonics were better the effects were different and it was just it's that thing that I'm talking about that I can recognize in Jam and Lewis having that thing or, or L.A. Babyface where it's like, you'll know if you're there or not. Like, you know what I mean? And when you hear it, you'll know that why certain people's names become household names from making records, whether you're talking about the Mike Will Made It or the DJ Mustards or the, you know, like, and I'm specific, specifically talking about more on the urban culture right now. But it's like, you'll know why people know those names, because when you line those records up and you line that body of work up, what you definitely know is that they know what the hell they're doing, you know, every single time. Whether you like the record or not, that'll become one thing, but what it will what it will have is the opportunity to drive a record company one way or the other. <laughs>
1: There's a huge difference between you know when you're saying uh, you know the you're naming producers and you're saying more on the urban culture, but all of those producers you name defined like a pop era
0: mm-hmm.
1: it doesn't seem like it's not like your discography is you know it it really all it you managed you were working with artists like Pink. Do you know what I mean? You were working with Color Me Back. like they—they they were still like uh, they were pretty. I felt like you were still in the pop world.
0: Yeah, you know? I mean, I my like I said to my my upbringing allows me to be authentic in every generation. So when you listen to Katy Perry's Hummingbird Heartbeat, and you go, "Wait, that's the same dude that did JT Money," like I can get authentic. Like with I can get authentic and whatever the thing is, it's not going to you know one of the things that i love about my my creativity is that it's not going to be on display through a sound so it's like i truly take on the the era the the, the mindset of of turning into that um turning into that artist and letting and and giving them the thing that they really need and not necessarily having a sound that dictates
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com
0: slash host.
1: How did you meet the dream who obviously becomes like a big collaborator throughout, you know, that next level, like you were saying, that's the Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, you know, that's the baby face and l a reed that's like the you know that's the moment when you guys have this this team that's like unstoppable um side note like that that dream album is like is like in my like island albums as far as you know <laughs> that, those melodies are just so effortless and the the tracks are just it's a, it's just such a classy sounding album, but you know. Umbrella, kind of like is the, along with I mean there's this whole list of songs that you guys did in a very short amount of time. How did you guys meet, and why did you know that this was going to be a thing? After you know, what was the thing? What is that unspoken that everyone's always searching for?
0: I think um, I met Dream because Dream was signed uh, with my brother Laney. Laney. signed Dream and then Dream ended up not being signed because his contract kind of expired or whatever you call it it's, uh, when the contracts are over or whatever and ultimately what ended up happening is your Dream went out and kind of became something different and on his own and really started kind of making dabbling with making tracks as well as writing songs as well as shooting videos as well as just kind of dove completely into his creativity and I really honestly didn't really know what Dream had to offer before that point before he took his own career into his own hands uh I just knew he had a lot of melodies and a lot of um a lot of melodies and a lot of ambition and what ended up happening is through that time period he can't ended up coming back and I really had like a a, a real love for the music that he was making um, with Nivea at the time and um, we ended up getting in the studio because we hadn't spent any time in the studio and it was a, this kind of critical time where I was kind of figuring out what, what I was going to do with my the next wave of my career and I knew I wanted to make some changes sonically and engineer wise so I called my cousin Cook who um at the time had left music alone and was doing something completely different. And I called him and I said, Hey man, I really could use some help down here. Like I'm I'm kinda like I feel like something good's about to happen, but I need somebody to lock in with me. And he's like, Cool. Like and uh, we had that conversation and he moved to Atlanta. And um, he cut or, or I don't know if he moved or if he came and he started spending time, but somehow he ended up in Atlanta during that same time dream and i had been put in a position where we were kind of the only two writers that were around um like right after the first of the year because there was a lot of people traveling and people take time off during that time so we were just kind of up there um and i was at the studio and he said can i come by i was like yeah and we got a little bit of chance to like kind of be alone for about four or five days and um We started writing. We started um, just kind of getting what we thought, getting our wheels ready for the next year while everybody was on vacation and stuff like that. And by, you know, by the time three or four days went by, like we wrote Umbrella first. And then we wrote Suffocate right after or shortly there, either before or after. And those are, both those records were both number one. One was obviously a smash. The other one was still a number two pop record. Um, and, you know, I had other writers that I was working with and, and things like that. So about that time, I, you know, everybody started coming back from vacation or the 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 Christmas break. And I was just like, hey, hey, guys, like, um, I need you to, like, hold up. Like, kind of got something going here like with well, us just being kinda of locked in and we just started writing. Like we just started writing songs like crazy. And ultimately our differences is of influence I think complement each other really well. Um uh, I think because like I said, I I I definitely um that Jam and Lewis, Babyface, Teddy Riley, Devontae Swing type energy, and Dream is the oldest Redding type like he's a old soul melodies like he grew up with his grandfather so his sense of melodies are from a different generation and um, so what it, what he got through his subconscious listens as a kid and what I got through mine kind of creates this thing that creates these really um, that has the ability to create really melodic melodies and darkness at the same time and I think that's what the what that combination really led to and it's um it was super super dominant I mean we pretty much I think we really changed the way people produce I think the super sessions that we see today are kind of like a a result of that you know because we had Carell cutting vocals. We had us just sitting in the chamber writing day in, day out. And we had Jason Joshua and Dave Pensado working together in a collaborative state on mixes. We had tech, uh, tech ORI, uh, what's tech? Yeah, tech on uh, vocal effects only. Like it was a real assembly line type of efficiency. And we started taking up so much real estate of music um, by taking hope over whole albums that I think people really had to really adjust to how they make records. And uh and now I think you see the super sessions with four and five producers, but you know, we had the we had Jazzy Faye collaborating with us. We had Los the Maestro collaborating with us on a musical side. So we were getting energy all over the place. So you know, to be able to take over Mary J. Blige's album Growing Pains and Win Album of the Year, um, Contemporary Album of the Year, do Mariah Carey's whole album, you know, have six songs from my company um, between myself and Esther Dean on the um, Teenage Dream album and doing whole films with Burlesque. And, you know, like, people were just surprised by the bandwidth and the speed. And, you know, we we kind of had a...
1: like did you have any other life outside of this or is this just like straight up i mean this sounds like you were only in the studio right like you must have slept in the studio i mean yeah we lived
0: we lived a um we lived a very uh interesting life during that time just because you know we the way that we like to work we took everybody to las vegas we stayed in las vegas so we were on the clock all the time so we worked under pressure and we liked people to come out there because in order for us to be out there we're in 13 rooms 13 14 rooms so you know it's like labels are like are you kidding me we're not we're not paying that like well you can come out and you know And at that time, we were so hot that, I mean, it's like, if you came out there, like, there was no chance that you weren't going to get your single. It didn't matter. It didn't even matter. You just didn't have a chance. And it's like, no one really cared because we would operate so quickly. Um, You know, we were doing whole albums. Like, the Love Hate album was written in two nights. Like, we did did it and we went to Las Vegas and we finished it. And that was the first time that we really touched, ba- touched down in Las Vegas because we knew we had the album done. And then we were like, let's go to Las Vegas and finish it, you know, because the truth of the matter is we were having like a lot of success and we could feel we could feel that we had something different. But Atlanta was so hot. There was so many hot producers. Polo the Don was super hot. Yeah. Uh, Brian B. Cox and Jermaine were super hot coming off of We Belong Together. He, like uh, Sean Gare was super hot. So our whole thing was let's go someplace so that if somebody wants to mess with Trick and Dream, they got to come see us. And it's not just a part of a group trip. So we made people really make decisions about whether they wanted to be in business with us or not. And by the time you came to Las Vegas, we made it where you didn't want to leave. And a lot of times, we would end up with that whole album before the artists even, before they could even blink.
1: The time it takes to from writing a record to a record coming out is a long time. And, you know, you guys, you guys had that first week where you guys wrote Umbrella and Suffocate. When one is, at that point, to get a Rihanna cut, with Jay Z, is still like the thing that kind of launches. Like you were saying, it's not like the other songs weren't killing it, but there's like a different level of that kind of success. Um, yeah, but that success—that you
0: know, success, success too—you have to remember, Rihanna wasn't Rihanna at that moment, so it was like she was very much like a uh, an artist that people looked at as a pop artist didn't really yeah. had. Hadn't had a cultural connection, so it felt more like Sean Kingston or uh, Jason DeRue, something like that. And this record solidified her as a overall thing to the to all cultures on all the on all the planets. So it was just a, it was a very very special record that can do that. Um, but that's what it takes a lot of times to get to that global stardom.
1: Usually, I like to talk about you know, the stuff that happens between the successes, but it's really hard to do that in this era because of how much material you're putting out that are hits. Um, Again, like, Single Ladies is another one of those moments that I think is, like, a little bit bigger than the other moments, you know, the other big moments. Mm -hmm. That track is fucking crazy. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, how do you write that? Like, how does that song, how does that song work? Why does that song work? I feel like every part of that song should not, should not work as well as it does. <laughs> like it makes it, it does, you know, it's like, it just seems like it comes from another planet. Um, when you're done writing a song like that, do you know it's the hit? Do you call Beyonce directly and say, Hey, you should cut this song. Do you like, well, it, well no that
0: that song was different because we were on tour with jay-z and mary j Blige for the heart of city tour and when we got to north carolina or something like that they were like we we had four days in madison square garden and they were like um they had sent a message i can't remember who sent the message over but they were like hey b would like to get in the studio with you guys when we get to new york so you're gonna be here for four days so we come in the studio, and it's we're at um, rock the mic, and it's just um, you know it's us. Stargate is in one room, we're in the other room, and we're just kind of going back and forth, like you know she's making records in there, we're making records over there. Single ladies is the first record we did, you know when we when we came in, because um, we were just I mean we were fired up, man, like because we were also. You gotta understand. We're also on a studio bus, like so. We got all this creative energy, and then we had gotten Timberland's studio bus. So we're making the Electric Red album while we're on the bus, you know. So now it's like, be in New York, come on. Of course we're ready. So um, I called my my cousin, Sean, Sean K, and I was like, "Yo, going to studio with Beyonce." Was like, "I need some new drum sounds, bro." like send me some new drum sounds so he sent me he's like i got you and this is MPC 3000 stuff so it's not like just trading sounds it's like you gotta send make the disc send the disc like gotta meet like federal express it to new york all that so we get the disc put in the sounds make the beat i'm about to throw the beat away because i'm not used to the sounds so i'm like i'm about to like go to the next one and dream was like what are you doing dog like I was like, I'm about to start another one. He's like, the hell you are? I got a whole song written in that shit in my head. And he's like, man, turn the mic on, man. And he's like, drop the track in and, and, turn, the thing, and, and turn the mic on. And he was like mad at me. Like, he was like kind of frustrated. Like, what are you talking about? you about to do another beat. And I'm like, all right, well, put it up. And then, shit, man. And he's like, oh, just ain't a That was the first thing that came out of his mouth. And he wrote the record. And we, we, Customize the record which is why it has so many unorthodox things in it like it's like the bridge is like six and a half bars or some crazy stuff but we you know we just we do things out of feel you know we like dream and i we weren't scared to try stuff like we would change the the pitch of the keyboards all just for the bridge to make them go up like were you like is that did the key change no it didn't change it's just sharp as hell right now you know but um, yeah, I mean, that, that situation was just a magical situation. Um, we did the record. Tata immediately came in. He heard the record. And because at the time, I think when we were working, I don't think Beyonce really had a plan for making a record. Like, so I don't think she was making a record. I think she was just wanted to get in, right? And Tata comes in, he goes, he looked at B and he goes, you're going to have a really hard time not putting that out, and he's like, "I know you, and it's gonna be hard for you not to put that one out like so and sure enough, so we went over and we played the record, we played it um Stargate was in the other room because at this time it's like a lot of rock Nation synergy, so it was very common for us to be in the studio with Stargate at the same time, you know, because if we were working with Rihanna or whatever, a lot of times they would be in the other room as well. So it was, so we walk over, we play the record. Um, Matthew Knowles is there and um, like sitting in the back and we come in, we play the record and everybody's like, I love that. Like, that's really cool. But like, kind of like, you know, like it's a little left to center. So everybody kind of knows it, but they're like, that shit's dope. You know? And then Matthew Knowles goes was like what's the name of it? We like, put a ring on it. He's like, Why the hell is it called put a ring on it if you keep saying all the single ladies? And so that's how it came became Single Ladies Put a Ring on It, you know, just because he was like, No, it should be called Single Ladies and um It's a good example. So yeah.
1: When you're a producer and you put out and you finish a track that you think sucks or if you're a songwriter and you have a concept that's really weird and like it's it's hard to bring up in a session those are the ones that are going to be different because they're going to mm-hmm. be the one that, that cuz you're doing full albums constantly putting out music to create something that's different than the other songs that you're putting out even when you do you do a whole Mariah album or a whole Mary J Blige album or whatever it is You still have to have one or two of those songs stand out from the rest of them.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, like, those are going to be the ones that are probably, you know, some of those are going to be the ones that are just different. Maybe not better than, just they're going to be different. Decades of songs.
0: I mean, I think that was the case with Just Fine. I mean, Just Fine on Mary J. Blige's album was a completely different perspective. Mary historically had been a little bit upset. Uh, you know she's always kind of like had a vibe and i thought the concept of that record is saying you know she had come through all these different things and and here's you know you just you know be without you is the biggest record and 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 now here it is i'm, I'm just fine like i'm i'm okay i made it through these trials and tribulations and it's all right let's have a let's have a party and and one of the things that i love so much about that record in particular is that, you know, just going to a Mary J. Blas show and someone that established and that has so many hits and to know that you created a moment in her show that's always going to be either the last song mm-hmm. or the second to the last song before that show is over is a was a huge accomplishment for me, you know? Um
1: the do, well, before I get to the next phase of of hits, because I think there's like this, there's an another step that's interesting. Are you able to enjoy any of this at the time? Like you, you're in the middle of being in a studio and you're constantly doing the next song. Did you ever stop and realize that you're working with the best of a generation, or were you like, well? man, we got to go in the studio, we got to write a hit, we can beat this, we can beat this, we can beat this. And you're like, oh, hey, B, hey, Jay-Z, hey, like, uh, whatever it is, Mary, Christina Aguilera, Sierra, whatever it is, these people are just w- living in your life. I mean...
0: I, I think for, for me, I really, I really enjoyed way. it. I enjoyed it. Like, um, because... That's the type of time that I spend... In it. That's That's the type of lifestyle that I live whether the cameras are on or not and whether it's Beyonce or the next Beyonce, it's like, I'm living the life that leads to the next thing. And I've always led that life um, of, of dedicating myself to that craft of music. And it's where I love to be. It's what I love to be doing. And to have a career where every day starts with silence and can end in magic, the possibilities of that or the people that I've met and the, the relationships that I've built the mentoring that I've been able to do, the lives that I've been able to change, the trajectory of thought process. There's so much that comes from being in the studio other than just the song. So sometimes even when the songs aren't manifesting themselves to chart toppers, what I am building is a lot of uh, a lot of relationships, a lot of perspective, and um, things that ultimately, ultimately I think make me a better person and make the people around me better people by us being able to have conversations through songwriting of different cultures and things that people may these people may understand this and these people may understand this but when you're trying to get to that common goal and you're using language as the as the uh as the tool I think a lot of times there's there's just a lot of camaraderie that goes on in being in the studio and by me not having um by me not having like success right off the bat um I never lost track of the fact of who I was in the room with like I knew exactly the magnitude being in the room with Mariah Carey and I wanted those moments and Mary J Blige and Christine Aguilera um all of them and 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 those were the special times like in and my most memorable sessions don't sometimes don't have a hit attached to them but you know my ability to build a relationship with Celine Dion so that when she works on albums now, whether I'm hot or cold, she always picks up that phone and says, Hey, I know what you do. You know, Lionel Richie, you know, those types of, those types of situations. So the there, there's so much great stuff that comes from it. Uh, Legend has become uh, a really Uh, over the years and we've not even I don't even think that we've had a song that stuck yet uh, to make one of his projects but just it's all of that like even you know it's just all of that camaraderie that gets built when you can sit down with people who genuinely genuinely care about their craft and and care about music the same really deeply the way that I do and the people that are around me is just I had to take in every last one of those fucking moments.
1: Yeah, I mean, your collaborators obviously feel the same way because your discography is filled with people who keep coming back for songs. It's not the same thing as, you know, one-off songs or one-off albums. You know, the amount of songs you've had released with the same artists are each one of their own catalogs, which is pretty impressive. But one artist that I feel like we have to talk about before we get into some of the business side of your stuff is Justin Bieber, because it's sort of an outlier. One thing that's incredible is you really good at helping women tell their stories. There are a lot of songs with a lot of women, you yeah. know, it's really uh, interesting things. So the one I was going to ask, why is that? And then also the experience of being Justin Bieber's first single that really breaks, like kind of breaks him. So both those things, I guess I want. What was talk the second about. question? Well, one is one is like the fact that you have so many, so many women as collaborators, and so many of these artists. Something you do helps them tell their story, and that's different. You know, I know producers where it's mostly men, but it's not this way. Why are you so good at writing for divas? And you know, so I wanted to know about that. And those are totally separate.
0: Got you. Well, I think. It's interesting that you noticed that um, because it's kind of like a joke now when I work with new collaborators and they're like, who do you think this is for? I was thinking, you know, throw out a name, you know, to be a guy. I was like, well, you know, if that's what you want to do it for, I was like, but honestly, generally, I don't even think about men when I think about records. Even when they sound like a man record, I'm like, well, Rihanna can sing that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, um, no, I think, I, I think I'm really attracted to I'm really attracted to the diversity, the the things that women can do away from uh, the song as it pertains to makeup, styling, like all the art that goes with it. Um, I, my mind has always, and what my sound sounds like, I feel like has always complimented women better. When I got in the industry, that was who I really wanted to produce. It was all, always about trying to get on the Whitneys, the, the Janets, the the Mariahs, the Marys, you know, Christina, But So that became the list. That became the hit list. And I was like, I got to work with every last one of them. And I was able to accomplish that, thankfully. And then, um, so then the criteria just became, after a while, I was like, well, if I'm going to work with a man, he's got to be crazy. So that just put it to the ushers and the um, the put it to that put it to Justin Bieber that putting that put it to Frank Ocean in that space you know so I've I've worked with male artists um I it's interesting you know I think here's what I was saying when I'm a work for hire I like to work with female artists but I love to uh, for the deep dive then I can get it, if I got enough, if I can get enough equity on a project like Dream or Frank Ocean where it has layers and it's not just about coming in doing whatever needs to be sold, then I like doing the deep dive with male artists where it's like it's more encompassing and we can get some different thoughts out there and what a different perspective than what's happening out there. You know what I mean? So I think that's kind of what it is and as far as Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber was just um, Scooter Braun from Atlanta, not from Atlanta, but was living in Atlanta, came up through Atlanta, and ultimately that was my guy. We had took a couple of swings on a couple, couple of projects, had tried to, um, you know, whenever he had a project, you know, I have a studio, and he would come through with Asher Roth or whatever, and I would, you know, help him put that together or get good mixes for him, and all that kind of stuff. And then we had this other artist, uh these two sisters, twins that we were working with trying to get signed Brit and Alex. Um, we weren't able to really get that off the ground, but we just had a lot of respect for each other. And um, you know, when I was up at Def Jam, uh, because we had a, quite a bit of things going on up there, uh, success wise, I happened to be in on a meeting one day and um, I was up at, at the meeting and you know the, the response to they were going through the roster and the response to Justin Bieber wasn't a favorable one at the time nobody really knew who he was and um, I was like well that's my guy Scooter's like project like so let me um you know like if, if he needs music you know if music if you're not sure about the music like I'm on fire I'm at Def Jam that's my friend let me do the music you know like me and Karen Kwok and Chris Hicks went off and kind of did the music. And, you know, I didn't even realize, you know, to give you an example like of where it was, I didn't even realize it because, you know, we were just so on the grind trying to make shit happen that, you know, I was in Nashville, the seat, uh, the country music awards um, last year. And Scooter was there and he was like, yeah, like, i want to introduce you. He introduced me to Max Hole. And he was like, I want you to know, like, I might not be here if it wasn't for this guy. He financed the first Justin Bieber album because they wouldn't, they wouldn't pay for it, the, the EP at first. And I was like, damn, that's right. Like we, didn't even, like, we didn't even get paid for those songs, like, on the first EP. Like, it was really like a renegade project when we did one time. You know, it was really like Us Against the World. And I was just trying to get the kid a record. And then I noticed that he was famous because, like I told you, my family, we've been around this our whole life. So I got a lot of young nieces and nephews. This kid's never been out before, never had a release. And my nieces and nephews don't come to the studio. And um, I come outside. I'm working with the kid. And my whole family's outside. And I'm like, what are y'all doing out here? They're like is Justin Bieber in there? And I'm like, what? And they're like, is Justin Bieber in there? And I'm like, I mean, I I think so. I think that's his name. Like, I'm not sure. Little kid, like little white kid, cute haircut. Like, yeah. So all my nieces, read the, like whatever he was doing on YouTube had created quite a gravitational pull. And he had a gravitational pull to him and always has and always will. That is, uh, his stardom is different um, than anybody's that I've ever been around, with the exception of probably Michael Jackson. It's a different level of stardom, and he he just had this thing about him. And next thing I knew, like I, I can't remember what it was, but I was in the Def Jam meeting, and I remember that they had a like a um uh like a a signing for him like you know an in store and they got there and the, pro- the the person from the label actually got arrested for inciting a riot because of how many kids showed up and that was kind of like that was kind of like the light bulb going off like oh snap like this kid is like out of here right and so um at that point somehow that's when the that's when the wheels got really got turning and you know, Dream and I were able to do the baby record after that. I think it ended up selling 14 million copies and yeah. became, you know, the highest selling single in music history at the time. I think it might have been surpassed now with the the new calculations of how with the streaming and all that. But as far as back then, that was 14 million real um, downloads of uh, one single song, which had uh, surpassed Candle in the Wind. So that was a pretty
1: awesome moment too um i know we can talk about music on the songwriting side all day but you're you know as an executive and as an a and r person obviously like we're both friends of ricky reed you know we've we you worked at, at epic for a while you went through that you know i'd say as an artist there's no one that's Probably more influential that you signed on the executive side and you can probably correct me on this, but Frank Ocean is just so big. And, um, it's a different kind of music and a different kind of artist than this generation. Like we just don't have a lot of artists that are putting out music. That's not all aiming for a single, 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 single. Instead, he's putting out music in a way there's a lot of similarity between him and the dreams albums back in the day. You know, it is a lot mm-hmm. of melody, a lot of interesting lyrics. It's a lot of cool vibes. How did you get involved with Frank Ocean?
0: Well, um, I got involved with Frank Ocean because, um, Tab. you know, tab, um, A&R, super yeah. creative. Um, He has been a collaborator of mine. He was my songwriting partner for many, many years. And he's gone on to sign some really great talents, Frank included and um, Alessia Cara as well as others. But um, he essentially, I believe at the time, was working at a publishing company and he had signed him to the publishing company. And he, my brother, Mark Stewart, who happens to be my manager and business partner, Happens to be Tab's best friend. We've all known each other for about 25 years. Tab brings them to Mark. Mark, um, I'm pretty sure, goes crazy over them. And they set up a meeting for me. And at this particular time, I'm completely, completely slammed. Like, I'm doing Mariah Carey's album. I'm doing Christine Aguilera's movie and her album. And working on and working on a lot of other projects like that are one offs. But the two things that like doing a whole album on Mariah and a whole movie, the soundtrack, music supervision, and all that stuff. So they come in and they're like, We want him to write with you. Can you get in and write with this guy? And I was like, you know, of course the answer is gonna be yes, because Anytime that they ask me to write for something, I can pretty much know that the person is going to be pretty great because that's what they usually bring. But I heard his, I heard his music, and I said, and I, I started listening to it, and I was like, man, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, I love this guy, but, um, you know, I'm thinking like, whoever sings these records, like this shit is going to be a real major letdown like whoever cuts these records I don't care what artist it was I heard something in his tone and I was like every single one of these things is going to be a disaster so me trying to and I'm already living in a in a way a world that is amazing and that I hate at the same time trying to get people to capture the world of, of dreams essences and nuances so here it is I got this other guy that's bringing this whole other thing but it's just as specific and just as outrageously good as this other thing that i'm working with that i think is absolutely amazing so we kind of meet in the doorway and i'm going like this and he's coming like that and i'm like dude i'm really really i really really love your shit i was like i'm like slammed to the gills i said i want to work with you but the only thing is if i work with you I don't want to work with you on no writing type shit. I was like, like, if you'll be my artist, then I'm down. Like, will you be my artist? And that's the way that we can work. I was like, I don't know if you want to be an artist or not, but I said, but the tone, I was like, I I don't want to be trying to cut those songs over on nobody because I'm hearing these songs that, you know, I'm like, Jesus, who is this guy? You know, like, just like, like special, special, special stuff. So that's the story. Of me signing Frank Ocean, it was uh, put to me up on a silver platter by my long-term collaborators. We met in the hall, in the doorway of the studio at um, the Boom Boom Room that I had rented out for a, a while, and that's kind of the story. And after that, we just really got into making the records. And you know, the other the other big thing was with Frank. You know, when you talk about his his uh his ability to cut through without having traditional hit songs. He has so much mystique. And he always makes sure that he writes a hit. It may not always be the song, but it's always a driver into the project. Like it's just something as simple as calling his album Blonde and Dying His Hair Green. That's a hit. You know, that's a that's a that's a slam dunk. You know what I mean? Like and the the art and how that looks and you know he's just a very very smart guy and he understands how to he understands how to be Frank Ocean that's that's the one thing for sure and he also understood that he had to be Frank Ocean you know like he the hardest part for me was all those songs that I loved that I was so passionate about one of the things that came out from that conversation he says hey well guess what it was at that conversation. He goes, "You know, I'm willing to be your artist and everything. He's like, but I gotta tell you, I hate every song I've ever written. so I have if if you want to sign the person who would sing those songs, that's not the artist that I am. So then we had to start over. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. so
0: that was hard because i had I had the type of he was writing records, Frank can write right, you know what I mean? like even on the early Justin Bieber first ep like he wrote some of those songs um you know on that on that ep and he can write and so when he was brought to me like he had you know he he was writing songs with the intention of you know doing it from a writing standpoint which obviously means you take different types of chances but you know I heard songs that move me every bit as much as what I hear on Bruno Mars's music, and you know you and you wouldn't hear that in Frank's music as Frank Ocean, but as the writer that he once was, like he has a lot of different gears
1: um there's a seemingly this moment where you start to become an executive more than a producer and a writer. Obviously, like we were talking about before we even started this interview, you're back in the studio, you're back to writing and doing a lot more of that. And it's not that you stopped writing, Mm. but clearly your focus was also being an executive. Mm. Is there a reason why you decided to start to push away from the studio? And um, do you like one more than
0: the other? Um, I think... You know, I think it's a couple of things I think when you when you play at a really, really high level, it's hard to not play at that level. like um I worked with, I pretty much checked every box of everything that I wanted to accomplish in the music industry, right? Um, so then you kind of have to decide what you want to do. And what I decided that I wanted to do and why I moved back to Atlanta is because all of, everything that I had done had, had come from this to that. These are the biggest stars in the world now. Like, no one can walk down the street. And I figured out that the only way I was going to be able to get back in the studio and love the studio was to do that with new people and bring that same skill set that I've always brought to those people that have propelled that type of success to new people, because you know it's harder when things get really big like that, and it's like you're in Paris during Fashion Week, chasing somebody around for a verse, like you know, and and you got to sit there for like five days while they're like, you're like, you know, I got, I got shit to do. <laughs> right you know like i don't have the time to do this like you know so I, I think ultimately that was part of it i think it's always been my i am a um i'm a huge fan of la reed being influenced by la reed um definitely put me on that trajectory of always life after music like I, that's i just saw that um as him being my mentor and being someone close to me, that's something that I saw up close and personal from him, and it was something that I that I really wanted to do. Um, I just had to decide how I wanted to do it, and um, how I, how I could do that on my own terms because um, being an executive is really really good, and it can it can be really really great. But uh, I I really like to win. And I like to win all the time, and I'm not cool with anybody that I sign. I want to see them win, and I can't necessarily be excited over here with something doing very well over here and this doing not doing well and and knowing that the same efforts aren't given into all things and you know from that standpoint it was uh it was emotionally tough for me, which is why I just kind of like. I had to figure out exactly how I to go about doing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that obviously makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of us feel the need to go also to need to be part of the executive side of things, you know, to see if that's the right path, you know. But a lot of us are also songwriters, and I can't imagine not being in a studio at the same time, you know
0: absolutely and that's that's what the vision is for what I'm doing now it's like you know you have all this skill set and it's like man I want to I just decided you know what I'm I'm ready to get my Dr. Dre on kind of vibe like you know I want my music to I want to create my music here I want to put my music out here it's like let's see let's see what all this skill set being at you know one or two addresses can really do and I'm I'm A&Ring, I'm uh, consulting for people I and I'm producing records for the things that are on our label and that's kind of the vibes. It's like, it's. Uh, I, I was a huge fan of what happened at LaFace Records from a creative standpoint and the artists that it produced and uh, all those types of movements that have come out of the line whether that was so, so deaf that led to the, the Bratz career and Bow Wow and Jermaine and Jagged Edge and It just takes someone with a vision to uh, get someplace, be there, and be comfortable with the successes that you can have where you are because, you know, while L.A. is the big game and it is the entertainment capital of the world, you can make a fortune um, doing music at a high level from Detroit as well, as Barry Gordy proved, you know. And at the end of the day, like, I've seen in this business – Anytime that anyone has ever really sat that was talented and focused in and put their craft in a specific area, I've always seen um, very favorable returns when you get comfortable with the su- type of success that you want to have. And when I really looked at how Jermaine Dupree built his situation, I was like, wow, Jermaine Dupree pretty much made records for so-so death. And then if you liked what so-so death did, he would pick up clients based upon him. Mariah Carey becoming one of his main, main clients, or uh, like, I, I wanted those records, she wanted those records, when you listen to the records that they ma- made together early on, like, those are escape records, like, she clearly liked escape, right, and she liked that that's all like, you know, the Be My Babies and all that stuff, you're like, I see where that comes from, and uh, and sometimes you have to have your feet on the ground in order to have the thing that the big big stars want, and that's even with my own success, when I was locked in down here with Dream and Esther Dean and Frank Ocean and those people, that's when the that's when I was able to swing the pendulum uh, our way through mu- musically our way to uh, get it where the things that we were thinking about in the way that we were hearing records was able to cut through, and we were able to have that time. Um, that that run in music three or three or four years however long it was where we were really leading and that's a much more fun place to be in the music business from is leading versus trying to catch up
1: no doubt in our last segment we're gonna do a five for five i'm gonna list five people or things and just tell me what comes off the top of your head uh my favorite on this list is somebody who I think gets the least amount of credit, not from you, but from the industry is his impact on what you've done. But Kuk Harrell.
0: What? Genius.
1: He's a genius. He really is. Like um, one
0: word or like. Yeah. You
1: can, you can say whatever you want. I mean, there are no rules. I whatever.
0: No, I mean, I think, I think Kuk is a genius and I think he, um, really helps artists find their, their voice. And I think that's really, really important um, that he helps artists find their true voice and one of the greatest of all time as a vocal producer.
1: Yeah. It's like when you, you mentioned Stargate and it's like the way Mikel can do vocal production or the way that like, when you find like some of these big writing teams, like there's always the person who, who just understands how to produce vocals and, mm-hmm. and you don't think about it because you're like, oh, well, let's just throw some auto-tuning compression and that's fine. But it's just not really. Like there's something no, no. intangible about what, what the Yeah, I mean,
0: that was part of being a production company. You had vocals is what made how you sound that advantage um, was part of the re- reason why people wanted to work with you. And, you know, that advantage, I had several advantages that on my teams exclusively and Kook was one of them early on in that run. It was a very it was just superior vocal production that led to the dominance of some of those records.
1: Yeah. Legend. Um the dream
0: like unmatched. Like I think he's like I think he's a freak of nature. Like um to be able to write fancy to come up with concepts like holy Grail to write girls who run the world partition love on top baby the titles like I like his titles his thought process his ability to look at pop culture and and um, and wrap it up in a song I think is unmatched especially being able to do it from hip hop all the way to pop. Mark Stewart. Man, that's, uh, Mark is, uh, Mark is a genius too. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, managers are about creating opportunities and most importantly, um, setting you up, setting your life up, setting your money up, creating wealth. And, um, the one thing I can say about our crew, everybody that ever worked with us, is paid <laughs> It's very well paid, you know, and we don't have any broke stories over here, like you know we've made we made a lot of records, but we were we we got paid a lot. And, and I, I really, really thank him for putting us in that position to uh, making sure that we owned our publishing, you know, making sure that, you know, Dream has never had a publishing deal. You know, that was a, it's a really big thing, you know, too, when you start talking about the songs that he has and um, and the things that he's created and creating the, you know, had a lot to do with the Karel career, the, that position didn't exist as the third party with a separate check and a separate point and that business was carved out and managed um and created by mark and judy um early on in that run to make sure that our camp uh that our camp was getting paid and that people felt validated and and that um you know we fought hard you know when we walked in the door with rihanna and rihanna did not want to work with kook you know she had a vocal producer and You know, um, and since then, since that time when she had that session, she hasn't made a song without him. So, you know, those relationships, those that kind of uh, going to Jay Brown and having those real conversations and digging in and fighting and saying, look, if if you don't want to use the coop, then we ain't doing the song. Like, those are the types of things that, you know, you can't you can't put your finger on. So shout out to Mark for like, you know, Mark and Judy have managed me since i was 15 years old judy and i went to high school together um they're married um and it's just been it's been pretty amazing the whole time
1: then let's keep going with the fam let's do laney stewart
0: laney stewart he's the one that he's how it all started for me um without him there would not even be the vision of being in the record business traditionally our family was in music but like I said I spoke a lot about church and jingles and things like that but he was the pioneer that wanted to make records he was the person that I saw so he was the um he's the mentor he's the kind of the the captain of the Stewart family clan and just the whole even the mentorship that goes on um, what it what it means to be associated with myself or red zone or r z three or any iteration of uh company that we're doing there's always not only the music but there's also the the accountability there's the professionalism there 's the experience and there's knowing how to make like really good decisions of of how to advance your career uh for longevity so that's that's what we get from from Laney
1: Okay, the last one, red zone.
0: Shit, man, red zone is um, that's it. I mean, that was the, that's the mantra. You know, it's always like I said, it's always no matter what we we could change our name, we sell sell companies, things like that. But it's the mantra of doing things that give you an opportunity, um, is very very important and. Uh, we the red zone as a buzzword for us is like we know when we're not in it you know that's the other part that you gotta know is like i'm on the 40 i gotta get to the 20 so i have a shot you know what i mean it's a real literal football term so it's it's a quest to to stay in it but you're not always in it but um if you if you identify with it then you won't give yourself excuses for coming up short and that's a big part of being successful in this business is that you know you gotta you gotta put pressure on yourself to know that hey you know what nobody's not trying no one is trying to keep me out of this business i'm just not writing big enough hits to kick in the fucking door like and that's the game and everybody who we know who has a name and that has a whether it's ricky reed whether it's max martin whether it's dr luke whoever the fuck it is they kicked in a fucking door and there's no there's no way around that. When you listen to Polo to Don's music when he came out, or Jermaine Dupree, or these people that like from my era and my generation that we're talking about, you listen to the first impact of what you heard, and it was nothing like that. And that moment for me was different because it was Umbrella and I was like ten years into my career. So I was a little bit of a late bloomer. But when I go back and listen to Dallas Austin working on Motown Philly, and Ain't Too Proud to Beg, and the energy of those records, he's kicking in the door. And the same with Organized Noise coming in with Outkast, and Goody Mob, and Cell Therapy, and all those records, and all that, they're kicking the fucking door down. And you listen to I Kissed a Girl, it's like, they're kicking the door down. So, yeah, is it hard to get in? Do people sometimes, you know, like, you know, you hear all the time, people are like, oh, the industry this, the industry that. No, it's like, you got to kick the door down to get in, and once you're in, it's cool. You'll understand the level that you have to play at, but it's hard to identify with something that you've never experienced.
1: Yeah, something you said early on. You know, it's like when you're once you get used to being part of records that have a certain quality, and you start seeing songs react in, in accordance to like the the quality of the songs. You know, if your career, if you're if you're you know, you you just start setting that bar of like I can't. I don't go out there and try to write songs you know i I have plenty there's so many songs out there it's like it, there's we say this a lot, but there it's so easy to write songs, really hard to write hits, really hard to write hits, but that means that you have to be focused and you have to like there's a certain purpose in that session to not like you're not you're yes, you can just have fun when you're doing like a whole week and you're just writing and stuff but like show up aim for big. Yeah. You know? And you
0: know, one of the things, one of the biggest adjustments in this industry that I had to make is that that there are people. This, this is a different time. Everyone that's coming to to the studio is not there for the same reason. When I was coming up, everybody wanted not only a hit, but they wanted a Grammy. It was how how you recorded it. It was it was the presentation of it. Like you did things not only for the day, you did things for history. Like, I've re-recorded records because hit records are line on a record because I heard somebody's mouth bump the pop filter. And it's like, ultimately, when if this record is what I think it is, I don't want somebody to come up and study my work and go, damn, look at that. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's one of those things that when you care a lot about this, you have to ultimately dedicate yourself to that craft and to that level of craziness, I think, in order to be considered one of the greats. And that's what I'm I'm trying to get in the conversation of some of the greats. And, you know, it's 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 rare air up there. So you gotta you have to be elite and there's no way around it.
1: Yeah, man. Well, uh, thank you for doing this. I, I think that there's no doubt that you're one of the greats. I don't think there's anybody who knows your name who doesn't think that you're one of the greats. And what's cool about it is like, dude, you're not just one of the greats because of your production or your songwriting or, you know, the you know being an executive, all those things you're great at. But it's because you treat the people around you with respect it's the fact that people behind your back really love you you know and the fact that when you're your your crew of people all did get paid and do get paid and that there's there's not this story of like oh yeah but you can't ride with them because the big guys eat the you know the big fish eat the little fish like that's not what's happening yeah. you guys are fighting for each other and, and it's man it this it's it's always cool to be around you cuz you're you're a very smart guy and you're very accomplished because you're Fucking motivated, and it's <laughs> thank exciting, you, man. I mean, like we're we're all in this trying to just, you know, we're we're all hustling together. We're all trying to do our own thing, but uh, it's fun to. It's it's always been fun to watch your work, and it's fun to be in the same business
0: as you. Thank you, man, and and you as well, man. I, I'm I'm so glad we got to reconnect. This is so cool that you're doing this, and um i'm looking forward to reconnecting especially musically and and all that good stuff because it's been a minute but i'm i'm back on that shit and it's it's really exciting time and i would love to um get get uh, you even down to atlanta for a week or so so that you can see what's going on down here once this is all over there you go yeah absolutely man thank you for having me
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan.